during early COVID, uh, you know, we had a decision make to make. We, we needed to decide, do we cut our costs and let go of a ton of workforce, which itself is often on the cusp of poverty? Or do we take the short and medium term, term hit, invest more in the company, keep people on board as long as possible, uh, with the bet being that if we keep them on board, we're going to have profoundly more employee loyalty, profoundly better customer experience, clinical quality, and we'll be the fastest ones to ramp back up once all the uh, stay-at-home orders uh, get pulled back. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we talk with the entrepreneurs shaping the future of health and discuss the health moonshots that they're working to achieve. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. Today on the show, we've got an esteemed guest, Dr. Andre Ostrovsky. Andre is many, many things. He's a practicing doctor, a pediatrician, and an entrepreneur. In fact, he founded and sold a company that was part of Startup Health's portfolio many years ago. In 2016, Andre took on the role of Chief Medical Officer at Medicaid. Then he rolled all that experience up and became a health innovation investor. Andre's done it all and is generous with that experience, so it was great to have him on a recent fireside chat with a few dozen founders from the Startup Health portfolio. If you enjoy conversations like this about the innovative thinking necessary to improve health around the world, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast and check out our Health Moonshot Update series on YouTube. Now, here's Dr. Andre Ostrovsky. Let's start a bit with your journey. I mentioned that you're a health, you are a health transformer, uh, founder of a company called Care at Hand. And so, could we go back and uh, tell us what your what your company was all about? What you were building when you were a founder in the startup health family and in, in the portfolio? Uh, kind of what that was all about. Sure. Um, Care at Hand was going after the problem of helping people age and thrive in the community safely. My co-founder and I, uh, Jeff Levy, we had the insight that there was some really productive mobile technology developments around 2010 that could be applicable to the home setting. And increasingly, there is a financial incentive and push to keep the elderly out of the hospital, preventing readmissions. And um, we thought technology could really support that process. So we created a platform that identified which elderly individuals could be at increased risk for hospitalization and in particular re-hospitalization. And the unique aspect of our approach was that uh, we, we had the insight that the most influential care team members were not folks like me as the clinician, but usually the non-clinical care team members. And so we thought if there is a way that we could somehow digitize the hunch of a non-clinical care team member, like an adult child or a home care worker, um, perhaps that could be a way that we could use the existing people around the patient to identify risk factors for readmission and then have a, a leading indicator that um, care teams could use to intervene and, and prevent someone from bouncing back to the hospital. Um, we ended up developing some pretty elegant technology, publish, publishing some studies around the uh, validity of, of those algorithms and that technology. 
Um, and then we ended up um, selling the, the company to a company called Mindula Health in 2016, uh, which uh, to this day is, is using the technology we built as the backbone of, of their platform. Um, so that sounds like a great fun journey and success and all that, but I'm happy to tell the more important parts which are the yeah. steps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but totally, yeah, totally. Let, let, let's dig in there. Well, what do you wish that you uh, knew then that you know now? Uh, what do you wish that a 2013 founder uh, knew? Um, I think it, one, one of the key tenets around investing and or operating in the digital health space that I, I think I ended up discovering around, I think it was 20... Um, 13 or 2014. So you know, 2010, 2011 is when we found the company um, and we were going after a pure software play. And it became quite apparent then uh, in 2014. And I would say it's even more so now that uh, creating value outside of the healthcare space is totally possible with the pure software play, especially places like FinTech or um, PropTech or insert any other space in tech. Healthcare, however, I found that if a solution or an experience does not own the substantive chunk of the healthcare stack, that it will never break through or overcome the activation energy needed to create enough value in the healthcare system, mm -hmm. which is a mostly fee-for-service system. And so what I've kind of relegated in my mind pure software plays uh, in, in the digital health space is really only in uh, kind of business processes or maybe business process as a service. So revenue cycle management, I, I have a, a couple of investments in that space. I think those companies will do really well and they're pure software plays. On the front end of healthcare, care coordination, care management, risk prediction, population health management, I think it's incredibly hard to build a viable venture level growth business that's pure software. And so in 20, um, probably 14, what I should have done is actually closed down the business and then rebooted it as a full stack offering of tech enabled services. And I'm very bullish on tech enabled services. And that's the majority of my portfolio of investments out of I think 18 investments now. Most of them are tech enabled service businesses doing very boring things, which is going after fee-for-service, um, basically tackling boring brick and mortar businesses and just out-competing them because the technology happens to eliminate certain inefficiencies and or create a, a more um, convenient patient or consumer experience. That's sure. probably the biggest thing I should have done to create investor value and, and, and more importantly, patient value. But I was a stubborn first-time entrepreneur who was uh, also in clinical training and I thought I knew what was best and yeah. What were some well, of the lessons you learned going through the acquisition process? Uh, don't start a company, no. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, I, I'm so grateful I did it. Um, I, I, I would do it again. Uh, I found that having a few dozen angel investors was a very painful experience to get signatures. I found that having um, clear communications with investors 
was probably one of the best pieces of advice I took, which um, I know like Unity reinforced and Steve was probably one of the first people that really drilled it into my head how important um, good investor communications is. Because, you know, when you get a pivot, we went through three, I don't know if Unity, you remember this, but um, we went through three acquisition offers between January of 2016 and when we sold the company in May of 2016. And um, two out of the three acquisition offers had very significant, let's say interactions with investors that's that weighed on the outcome of the acquisition um, or the, the negotiations. And um, I've, uh, I've advocated for, for many of my portfolio companies now to be really careful about whose money they're taking and trying to minimize uh, taking, you know, the usual, like you, you set a limit on, uh, what size check you're willing to take. And if it's a small check, it damn well better be a very strategic investor. Um, and also one that's really mission aligned. Nothing against private equity folks. I, I, I'm on a couple of boards owned by private equity companies that um, I deeply respect. But I have to say like the, the biggest challenge I had in navigating the M&A activity was from a couple of angels who were private equity folks that had a private equity mindset and clearly never operated a startup. Um, and so expectations were fundamentally different. They were talking about, you know, well, what about my warrants and exercising certain options? I'm like, this, this isn't pill pack, my friend. Like this is, <laughs> this is a much, much more modest, um, this is a much more modest transaction and you're compromising some kind of interesting uh, investor returns just to kind of be frankly greedy. Um, so I, I can't really generalize to private equity folks, but just being aware of angel investors, uh, backgrounds, mission alignment with the company. Um, and, and I, I, re I recognize saying that is really easy to say now that like I'm out of the pit. I, I know like getting any money in is so, so valuable and like we can't be particularly picky, especially early on in fundraising, um, but where it is possible, you know, sniffing out the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the douchebags early, um, it, it can really help out in the M&A activity. And I will say, like, I just sold a company on December 31st, which I'm super excited about. And, um, you know, with a little internet sleuthing, you could probably figure out which company it is. Uh, and we'll, we'll have some, like, PR coming out in the next couple of months from the acquiring company. Um, I took those lessons, and I was on the board of that company, um, I took those lessons to heart and, and very significantly protected the founder from other investors who are basically trying to pull the same bullshit and reminded them that, you know, that you're, whether you get an X percent uh, of the transaction or X plus 1% kind of doesn't matter because this isn't a billion dollar transaction. Um, and, and so I, I think uh, having an entrepreneur mindset and a founder-friendly mindset is really what I learned from my M&A activity. Um, and I think that's, that's been good because I, I have a generally a favorable uh, reputation with my companies that I, I usually go to bat for my founders, regardless of my financial returns. Nice. That's awesome. Um, let's, let's fast forward a little bit in your journey. Uh, you were asked to be the chief medical officer uh, at the Office of Medicaid. Uh, and I just want to like stop there and just say, uh, 
what was it like to get that offer, that phone call? If you could take us back to kind of that transition period and just what was that like? Um, I think it was a testament to the whole notion of, um, you know, Pastor, whoever was quoted as saying, uh, luck shines favorably on the prepared mind. Um, I, I was very lucky to have an opportunity to take on a role for which I was grossly uh, unprepared for and simultaneously way overqualified for. And what I mean by that is um, I, I had sold into Medicaid pretty extensively. Um, as a pediatrician, most of the kids I saw were Medicaid reimbursed. Um, I, I understood you know, many of the uh, peripheral aspects of the Medicaid program, but the guts of it, the policy, the statutory, the regulatory underpinnings, I, I really had no idea. And so in that regard, there was, uh, I had a lot of angst around taking on a role that, you know, I wasn't a lawyer, I, I, I didn't understand some of those aspects, but what I was being asked to do was introduce change management to a highly bureaucratic organization. And mm -hmm. as a startup founder and someone who it took some, some level of rigor in building my own skill set around, um, you know, building product, customer development, strategy, general organizational management principles and you know, design agile lean those types of skill sets that's basically this the toolbox of change management and i know i knew those things pretty well and that's what i was asked being asked to do to come into the the, the national medicaid program and help evolve the organization to be more customer centric and more streamlined um, the conversation the way i got that role was uh, one of my mentors patrick conway who who remains a, a great mentor and friend of mine. Uh, he's someone who I had uh, you know, a quarterly mentorship call with ever since I started residency. And um, I had given him, you know, we had our, our regular check-in, I think it was mid-May of 2016. And I said to him, hey, Patrick, we, I think this is actually happening. I think we're actually selling the company. And, um, you know, I have a year-long earnout period, but after that, I'm, I, I'm kind of free. And uh, if there's any big problem that you think I could be helpful with, let me know. And he ended up reaching back out to me in a couple of weeks saying, um, I've got a job for you and I, I need you to go run this pro help run this program. It, and to which I responded like, how the hell could I do that? Like, I, you know, <laughs> just for the same rationale, I just laid out to you all. And he reminded me, and it was very obvious, like it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And that, um, you know, if you can figure out starting a company and growing a company and selling a company, like you all are doing right now, you can pretty much figure out anything, right? Like our jobs are literally to learn super fast, be kind and gracious and discover value super, super efficiently. And the whole, you know, walk through walls metaphorically in some cases, uh, literally, um, that, that was a pretty good preparation. And, and so I uh, uh, took, took the role and it, it was um, the first four months were awesome. Um, and then, and then they weren't, <laughs> um, but I'm grateful for the experience. Uh, it was, it was a good, great learning experience. Um, why don't you take a moment to kind of school us a bit on uh, Medicaid and Medicare. You said you came in having sold into Medicaid, but then really, didn't there was just a, a body of information that you didn't know yet. So I'm sure it was drinking from the fire hose of information. We've got folks on the call who 
uh, some play in that sandbox, some don't, uh, some from the United States, some not from the United States. So uh, Medicaid versus Medicare, give us some top line uh, knowledge. Absolutely. Um, so Medicaid is the national uh, public health insurance program for people who are in poverty and or who have some kind of functional deficit. Um, contrast that with the Medicare program, which is the national public insurance program for people that are 65 years and older or people with end-stage renal disease or people also with functional compromise and that have basically been Medicaid eligible for two or more years and they can kind of bump up to Medicare eligibility that way. The uh, statutory underpinnings for the Medicaid program are outlined in the Social Security Act Title 19. And there's a lovely chapter that I do not encourage you guys to go out and read. Um, and then similarly for the Medicare program, it's indoctrinated in Title 18 of the Social Security Act. A really important business development aspect uh, that is a difference between the two programs is Medicare is centralized. It is run out of uh, the Baltimore office of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And what happens centrally is basically doctrine across all of the United States with a little nuance in that Medicare Administrative Contractors, MACs or MACs, have some local coverage determination flexibility. But basically, if there is a certain CPT code that has uh, uh, a certain level of reimbursement and it's decided upon by Medicare centrally. It basically is gospel across all of the United States. Contrast that with the Medicaid program. It's a federated program, which is a federal and state partnership. Each state and territory, so 56 in total, have their own state Medicaid office. They have their own state Medicaid plan. And each state and territory basically have to get the approval of the Fed centrally in order to approve what is the benefit for whom, how much it's paid out. And so it's highly variable. Medicare consistent, centralized, Medicaid highly variable and state driven. And that creates a pretty interesting challenge or opportunity, depending how you look at it, when we're thinking about getting our solutions reimbursed. Do you wanna go for spend a whole lot of resources, enormous amount of lead time to get one big bang reimbursement opportunity through Medicare or to get shut down and basically to never get approved again? Or do you wanna have 56 at bats, which basically take the same amount of time as it does for Medicare. But if you screw up in one state, meh, you go to another, you have 55 other opportunities. Again, oversimplifying, but that's kind of how I would think about it. And then there's also the, duals, Medicare and Medicaid, both eligible, which currently stated numbers suggest that 13 million is probably underestimated, more like 15, 16 million. But these are the folks where, you know, we're, we're not talking a three, $400 per member per month premium in Medicaid or a whatever the most recent data, $956 per member per month average premium in Medicare Advantage. We're talking like three grand a month premium, enormous amount of money that's being spent and potentially savings opportunity, value creation opportunities. Um, and we can, I, my um, team of mentees uh, actually wrote, did a research study on duels and technology, which I'm, I'm happy to dig in on, but um, that, that I'll pause there as kind of a general overview of the distinctions between the two. 
So you said that there's pros and cons to going the centralized Medicare route versus the 56 at bats. Uh, do you feel like those are, I mean, you're talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs here. Do you feel like those are pretty even odds or do you have, you know, uh, recommendations as to how someone should go about this? Yeah, I, I, I have a relatively straightforward recommendation. I would say that focusing your company's business development, customer development, or product development activities should really start with first principles which is what is your end user need or want? Like, do you want to create value for someone who more likely is a Medicaid eligible beneficiary? Or do you want to primarily create value for someone who's a Medicare Benny? Or I would actually advocate in almost all cases, don't start with public payer and go to where it's the easiest to sell when there's the highest margins, which is in the employer, uh, employer sponsored insurance space. Um, and I, that, that, that's a philosophical tune that I have fundamentally changed from the time when I was operating um, care at hand and, until now, because I was myopically and um, ideologically convincing myself that if I'm not trying to serve the duals population, then I'm not doing my job to have social impact, blah, blah, blah. Uh, when in reality, like I wasn't doing my job to have social impact because I wasn't creating a profitable business. <laughs> and in the end, like, yeah, we had like a fine M&A activity, but um, it wasn't at the level of scale that anyone, anyone would say like has fundamentally changed the American healthcare system. And so I would say build a viable business first, ideally one that is profitable. And if it's not profitable, at least have really meaningful revenue growth. And once you have your beachhead identified and you're really, you have that flywheel and you're generating revenue, every customer in the space reflexively thinks of your company's name, then start to evolve your strategic framework for the next two, three, five, 10 years to back into the public payer space. Because then you'll have the margins, you have the credibility with your board and your investors to start taking risks where perhaps margins on a unit economic basis or not perhaps, they will be lower on a unit economic basis, especially Medicaid, but damn, the TAM is huge. But it, it's, it's hard to say to investors or a board or frankly to any smart early hire, oh, we're starting off with Medicaid with a few rare exceptions. There are some businesses, you know, CityBlock is one of um, our shared investments, I think um, has been able to do it. And there's a few others. But in most cases, I think starting with Medicaid is, is not prudent. Um, Medicare Advantage, a little different. Margins are much more generous, et cetera. But um, I, I'm happy to elaborate uh, on that theme. As, as a leader, uh, you know, and you're sitting on boards, you're advising companies, how do you help people pragmatically to walk that line between their passion to fight disparities in health, to have that why, and to also be profit-driven and to build a business that is going to thrive uh, in, a, in a capital market um, because you know that the one feeds the other and you can't have the impact without the success. So as a leader, how do you instill that in people? Um, because it's, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. Yeah, um, I, I think if... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm through and through capitalists. I, I think if people don't see the return on equity 
investment opportunity in serving poor populations than trying to convince them that there's some kind of social mission is a lost cause. Um, I, I very much prefer to lean with show people the green as opposed to show them you know, the equity impact. Um, and I, I very strongly believe, and, and I have some at least process measures to suggest that investors can make comparable, if not outsized returns, investing in populations whose you know, remedying their challenges um, can, can drive really meaningful profit growth and uh, multiples on company valuations. So I, I never try to convince people that, hey, you know, let's, let's do social entrepreneurship and let's have societal impact. Um, what, what I often do is uh, when, when there's a, this is mostly with private equity owned businesses. Um, if there are investors that saw a investment opportunity in serving a Medicaid or duals population um, and they have a decision to make a fork in the road, for example, early COVID, there were some very challenging decisions to be made. Uh, uh, explaining the difference between short-term and long-term consequences of certain decisions and forks in the road uh, in, a fi in financial terms, that has been really helpful. And I have um, you know, one business uh, I'm happy to, to like publicly share, like, um, there's a business called Blue Cloud uh, Pediatric Ambulatory Surgical Centers. They're owned by Norwest Venture Partners. And um, during early COVID, uh, you know, we had a decision make, to make. We, we needed to decide, do we cut our costs and let go of a ton of workforce, which itself is often on the cusp of poverty? Or do we take the short and medium term, term hit, invest more in the company, keep people on board as long as possible, uh, with the bet being that if we keep them on board, we're going to have profoundly more employee loyalty, profoundly better customer experience, clinical quality, and we'll be the fastest ones to ramp back up once all the uh, stay-at-home orders uh, get pulled back. Um, that was one bet. The other bet was that do we keep treating the kids for whom we do not have uh, uh, Medicaid coverage yet, for whom we are not in network with their payer yet. Um, and we had, again, choice to make. We could treat these kids and take a pretty significant hit, um, or we could turn them away. They have, and, and these are mostly kids with complex care issues. They're oftentimes have um, cognitive impairment. So a general dentist can't treat them. You need anesthesia in order to do any kind of dental work. And so these are very high, uh, kids are highly prone to complications from something as simple as a, a dental carry, which could quickly turn into an abscess and quickly just deteriorate into badness. Um, and the company made the conscious decision, which I, you know, I, I didn't have to do too much arm twisting. I just kind of laid out that my hypothesis is if we make these short-term investments and perhaps not make uh, cost reductions and look better from a EBITDA perspective uh, in the short term, uh, it, it may hurt, but in the long term, it'll be beneficial. And what ended up happening is the company ended up, for the reasons I just described, exceeding its pre-COVID 2020 budget. It, it was more profitable than expected, despite COVID happening, because of all these reasons. Like we were first to turn back on. We didn't have all the massive churn that everyone else had and had to rehire. 
our employees loved the company because they were able to keep putting uh, uh, food on the table. So that was amazing. That bet panned out. And then uh, by treating kids that, you know, because some health plans had, um, let's just say some bureaucratic challenges in, in getting us in network, you know, we shared with some of my, and this is where, you know, if any of you go the government route post entrepreneurship, this is where you can have an outsized impact as an investor or board member. You know, I would go to my state Medicaid colleagues and I would explain to them, look, there's a business that I'm an investor in and I'm on the board of. They're treating your kids, even though that your MCOs are not paying for these kids' care. We're saving lives and keeping you out of the headlines. What can you do to help us make sure that we get paid? And boom, I mean, state Medicaid director after state Medicaid director applied a little pressure to remind the health plan leaders like, hey, do you want to still be getting paid by the state? Turn on the faucet, we got paid. And all of a sudden, this is like an incredibly profitable business. The profit is driven based on improved clinical outcomes. And those short-term investments ended up having pretty remarkable um, long-term financial and, and societal impact. And to your original question, like I didn't have to do a whole lot of arm twisting and say, hey, let's do the right thing socially. Yeah. I, I These are people that want to make money. And I believe, and I think that that data point others show that there will be more money made in the long term by doing the right thing for patients. Yeah. Making the smart, the smart financial move as well. Um, that's awesome. Thanks, Andre. Um, let's shift gears uh, and get some questions from the audience. Uh, I see uh, Beth Sanders from LifeBio. You have a question there. We've got a bunch uh, that have been listed in the chat. So I ask you to be uh, a little brief in your question, but please, Beth, if you can come off um, mute, tell us what you do and ask your question to Andre. Hi, Andre. I'm Beth Sanders and uh, I have a, a company called LifeBio, but lately we've been doing loneliness interventions with so something called My Hello which is phone-based and is uh, working with uh, Medicare. Uh, and we work with Medicaid too in the state of Ohio. But I guess I'm wondering, do you see a move to more reimbursement for mental health and behavioral health kinds of things coming? Uh, you know, is there gonna be a shift in the, into a more social model of care from what you know about federal government uh, as we go forward? Do they see that as impacting physical health? Great questions and, and great to meet you, Beth. Um, in terms of mental health reimbursement going up, uh, I think that is a, a solid maybe. Um, I think you know we're we're out of the what I think was a worst case scenario with this current administration, and I think the next administration it, reimbursement can really only get better for mental health. To what extent it will get better, I don't know. Um, I'm not optimistic we're going to have like wholesale system change just because that would require both seats in Georgia flipping Democratic. I, I haven't looked at the most recent exit poll numbers. I don't think that's going to happen. And absent that happening, like we're not going to, at most, we're going to have marginal uh, system change from a legislative perspective. In terms of a social model of care uh, and looking at prevention and looking at upstream health determinants, I think we probably will continue to have, again, marginal improvements, but not wholesale change in that regard. Most of the US healthcare system is still predominantly, overwhelmingly fee-for-service based. And until we have a shift away from fee-for-service, 
prevention and upstream health determinants won't be profitable. Um, I think most of what we see right now in the buzz will remain as buzz. And I, yeah, so I, 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 don't, I don't see, I don't see like uh, fundamental shifts across the entire system. I absolutely do anticipate a continued growth in integrated care models. I do see continued momentum in the direction of providers taking on increasing financial risk. And in those pockets, I do see early market opportunities for really interesting solutions to be sold into them. Um, but the next four years, I, I don't think we're gonna have any kind of fundamental shift in, in the healthcare system. Um, well, with, with one exception, we may see some changes to, to Medicare uh, drug pricing. I do not think we'll see any meaningful changes to drug pricing in the employer-based insurance space. And we already have an interesting regulatory change with Medicaid drug pricing uh, with value-based payment um, being allowable. And so that, that the, the pharma space is gonna be an interesting one to watch, especially with biologics, but outside of that, we're not gonna have like system-wide change. Thanks for the question, Beth. Uh, we've got a question from Jonathan Fight from uh, Beyond Lucid Technologies. Jonathan, you want to come off mute? How you doing, man? I'm good, dude. How are you? Congratulations great to, on great to hear your voice. Likewise, um, I was actually. Dude, I, I got to tell you, I, I loved everything you just said. I was more just kind of plumbing the 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 depths of your thoughts when you mentioned that um, being on the other side of government was not per se all that it was cracked up to be, and then you kind of left it there. Um, I was hoping we might get some more dirt on what it was really like on the other side of the table. Uh, I love, I will say personally, I love that you use the word profit like four times in a row. Uh, because I, I think it's, it's a left out part of the conversation, right? I mean, the seeking not just uh, to keep the lights on, but to, to make the lights brighter uh, is something that uh, Silicon Valley has forgotten. Uh, funny money is a big problem right now, especially in our industry, right? I mean, you end up making bad decisions uh, in some cases. Uh, there's going to be a, a talk next week, I believe, by a very well-known investor who has driven some companies into the ground using that calculation. Um, so anyway, I was, I was, first of all, besides wanting to say hello, um, I thought you might give some more insight. Not, not per se, as Logan took it in the direction of what's Medicare and Medicaid like. Um, I've worked in government too, as you know, uh, in a different area. And I'd love to know what your experience was on the ground, getting the getting the phone, what kind of phone calls you got, and just what 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 perspective did you learn? Like you said, it was it was great, and then it wasn't. Tell us what happened when it wasn't. Sure. Um, thanks for that, Jonathan. Uh, and sorry if I was just uh, changing cameras here to uh, plug plug my computer in. Um, you got like four inches taller. Man. There we go. Ta -da. <laughs> um, the inflection point in my role in government was. Uh, pretty unique in that we had a transition, presidential transition to an unprecedented administration. And, you know, going from thinking that Hillary Clinton would be my boss's boss to going to uh, Trump being my boss's boss was uh, very difficult to swallow as a policymaker. And um, what was interesting is that I was brought in to make changes that uh, on on the surface, what Seema Verma was trying to espouse, which is more government efficiency, less red tape, more consumer centeredness, although she never used that specific language. Um, but in reality, what she came in to do with the Medicaid program 
was not those things, right? She came in to gut the program and she knew the program wow. incredibly well. With Medicare, she didn't know and still doesn't really fully understand what the Medicare program is. And luckily what that enabled career staff to do was to minimize her harm. And so I went from a position of uh, being brought in to be the change agent where my biggest difficulty was building trust with career staff and learning hard lessons, which in retrospect are kind of like table stakes, which is don't use jargon like Gemba walk or value stream mapping or um, uh, service blueprint. Just use simple language that federal career staff are going to be able to uh, understand. That, those are my hardest problems before the, the administration flipped. When the administration flipped, my hardest problems were, how do I not break the law, wow. but still make sure that the public understands that the White House is actively trying to kill poor people? Um, and so I, fortunately, like the um, legal counsel in the Office of Ethics, who became a great friend of mine, gave me kind of the guardrails of what was allowable and what was not allowable. And I'm proud to say I leaked a ton of information to my friends at Politico, Washington Post, New York Times. Like, I uh, un unfortunately, one silver lining of my terrible experience in government is that I have a very deep Rolodex of reporters because I kept leaking them information from the inside out. And as an entrepreneur, as a builder, as, an, as a creative, like you guys, being relegated to only play defense was wow. an immense cognitive dissonance. And so doing that for a year was, 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 was sucked. Um, and that's, that's what I meant by uh, the, the inflection point. No, I, I think, I mean, I, I would love, if you're cool, I'd love to hear some more of that offline from here. This is very interesting. A lot of what, as I think, you know, I, I deal with government a lot. Uh, I sell to emergency services, right? So a lot of it filters through government and we don't necessarily feel it as acutely as you did, I'm actually, uh, were you uh, considered a political position or? Oh, I would have been fired so, so long ago. I was career, so they couldn't really fire me, which is a, a whole separate issue. It's just, um, it's just really interesting that, you know, you, you, and I've been one of those folks who try to advocate the idea that the bureaucracy knows what it's doing, very much like you said, like they'll find a way to make things work. So to, to hear that it filtered down to you, but also how you pushed back on that is incredibly interesting. I see the, the link, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> It's incredibly interesting, um, just uh, some of the challenges that I've faced dealing with um, vested interests, shall we say. Uh, so I appreciate that. And uh, anyway, good thanks. to see you. Man. Thanks for the question, Jonathan. Uh, we've got a question from Dr. Alexandra Greenhill from Care Team. Uh, Dr. Greenhill would love to, to hear your question. Hi, Andre, and I'm happy to see you still in healthcare. So many people just give up and leave. And so thanks for uh, the continuous push to new ideas. Um, now that you've been inside the building, uh, building on some of the questions Jonathan was asking, you know, do you think it's money, mindset, combination, or something else that's like the one thing that if we could change, if you had a magic wand or something that would make adoption of technologies easier? Because we all know that between everything available today, you could introduce like 20 new things that will make an immediate and measurable influence on all of the four ROIs. And so why is that not obvious to so many decision makers? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think um, 
the system is so complex and there's so many contributing factors to that, that what I would say is maybe, uh, I, I will pivot my answer and, and say the system is what it is and it is incumbent upon us as the value discoverers to work within the very poorly designed system, acknowledge it for its poor design, try to seek out very differentiated, unique insight that is hard to access and then act on that insight in a very big bet, moonshot kind of way. Um, I, I think that's the best way I can take an optimistic spin and answer your question. And in that vein, one realization I had that you know, I'll just reinforce here, don't start with Medicaid or Medicare, start with where it's easier to sell, employer-based, pharma, direct-to-consumer, back into the, the, the um, uh, public payer space. Similarly, don't sell on a value basis. I, I was very proud of, in retrospect, it was a terrible mistake, trying to sell my software on a value basis, you know, trying to have contracts set up such that I would only get paid if certain outcomes were met. That was a terrible idea in retrospect. Our system is a fee-for-service system. It only really understands fee-for-service widgets. And I would strongly advocate if your solution or service is able to be reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, find that damn CPT code, find that damn HixPix code, and get reimbursed by submitting claims. Be boring. Be very under the radar. Don't speak with the innovation people at a health plan or a health system. Just go after fee-for-service existing piping. And then once you have some really meaningful traction, then you can start to escalate. Like that's um, unfortunately how I found there's the most success early on and getting around the poorly designed system that I think prompted your question. Yeah, it feels like a matrix experience. There must be an architect somewhere and a key maker, but I can't find them. They, so there's, um, since 1965, there have been many architects and many key makers, and that's the rub, right? There's so many of them, there's no single one. And even with, a, well, actually with a, a Democrat controlled Senate and Biden as president, maybe the system could change, but again, I don't, I don't think it will. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Greenhill. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Natalie Davis, Dr. Davis from Prevent Scripts. Natalie, want to come off mute? Hey, Natalie. Hey, Andre. Great to see you. Um, for those of you Transformers that don't know, I believe Andre and I are the only two pediatricians in the house. Hey. <laughs> uh, great to see you. Uh, we served on a, a HIMSS mobile health board four years ago for mm -hmm. about a year until it all fell apart and they started calling it something else. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Andre, excited to see you. Um, what are your suggest suggestions on recruiting uh, Medicaid uh, and dual eligibles into clinical trials? Um, we're working with the University of K Kentucky mm -hmm. in our uh, NIH nonprofit strategy. We're using research match, but I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on making sure we are um, having some Medicaid folks in those trials. Uh, really glad you're trying to do research with these populations. They're, they're grossly underrepresented. Um, I guess if trial recruitment is foundational to your business model, the, um, I would have a certain set of recommendations versus if trial recruitment was not 
central not, to it, okay outsource to a CRO. It's just the way to to fund the business. I, I would say uh, outsource completely to uh, a, 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 a clinical research organization. Like it's an entire industry. They do it really well. They're expensive as hell. But um, I, I think if, if recruitment is not foundational to the unique value you're bringing to your financial customer, then I would spend your energy, your, your financial, your time resources um, elsewhere and, and just outsource this function. And I'm happy to recommend colleagues that, I, um, that run CROs. That sounds great. We could use some leads on that, on that end. That'd be great, Andre. Okay. And, and Natalie, just to make sure I follow up and don't offer an empty offer, would you be able to maybe email me and Yes, I will. What's okay. your best email these days? Sure, we yeah. Get that, we, we can get that figured out, out off the call okay, perfect. and, and uh, share okay. that. Thanks, Dr. Davis. Thanks. Um, and we have time for one more question. Alan Gale from Amy Health. Uh, why don't you hop off mute and explain what you do and ask your question? Hi, Andre. Um, our Hello. company, Amy Health, provides uh, nutritional analysis and support for practitioners wanting to improve patients with uh, basically food as medicine using evidence-based uh, solutions. And my question is for companies that are looking to go into this public Medicare and Medicaid space, does it make sense to potentially partner with someone who already has contracts in that space with some additional value added technology or service that they don't offer themselves, but that works in concert with what they do perform. Uh, Alan, I think that could be a great idea. I mean, distribution is everything, right? Um, and if that partnership is, you know, if you're, if you're mutually benefiting potentially from that kind of uh, partnership and they have um, a meaningful distribution for sure, but then you get into the whole dynamics of um, opportunity cost and is that the right partnership and should you be using your scarce resources to try to optimize that partnership versus another partnership versus other organic means of, um, uh, of customer acquisition. And I think that's where the, the real answer lies. Um, I can share that I've had some really productive experiences with partner distribution partnerships. I've also had like really crappy ones. And um, it, 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 I think there's parallels with recruiting team members. Like you need to have folks that are culturally aligned. Um, ideally their processes mirror yours. In other words, like it, it, you inevitably are a really agile organization just by virtue of being a startup. If you're partnering with some very large incumbent in a space and all they have is waterfall, that may be a real risk to benefiting from that distribution. Um, and then you wanna consider like, is that partnership going to have tangential um, or indirect or orthogonal benefits or risks? For example, if partnering with that entity will box you out from partnering with another entity that could be equally or more valuable or is partnering with that entity going to have brand risk or confusion? Or if you're going to be raising capital, is this an entity that has the capability to contribute capital? Um, which is something I, I've done with a, a distribution partner, which, which was pretty productive. 
Um, lots of variables there. And I think that's probably just scratching the surface without having more context on the, the partnership opportunities you have available. Thanks for the question, Alan. Uh, because that was brief, I think we can squeeze in one more question. Uh, Lawrence from Avo MD, let me let you have the last word here. Um, if you can hop off mute. Oh, wow. That's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, Andre, thanks so much for the time. Um, our our uh, business model and um, sales model has recently honed in on pediatrics. Um, yeah, my man. Yeah, although not the not the most fun segment to sell into, given mm. low budgets and especially now mm. with COVID impacting already low budgets, it's been it's just mm. been tough. Um, would you have any recommendations just for how to approach selling like a clinical a piece of clinical software into the peds world into children's hospitals? I know it's kind of a general question and it's it's a little tough, but yeah. any anything you've seen uh, from your experience would be very helpful. I, I think the main Pediatric specific consideration is if you're selling into hospitals. Did I hear that right? Hospitals are, are a customer segment. Yeah, hospitals and, and children's hospitals. Yeah, I would I would say that the holy grail is ultimately being able to have the children's hospital association um, somehow serve as a distribution channel or vouch for your offering. Um, alternatively, having a, a you know like a top ten. Children's Hospital, um, be an, an early anchor customer, because um, that will have a pretty meaningful signaling effect. Um, and then there's always the tactic of, can you get one of those uh, marquee top 10 children's hospitals or health systems as an investor or have a real check signer decision maker on an advisory board with equity? Um, it, it, it's a bit convoluted because of conflicts of interest, but absolutely doable. And one of the one of the tools in my toolkit, whenever uh, starting a new company or advising someone may have I may have invested in, it happens to be um, selling into health systems. I think without that, the um, back to the metaphor of activation energy, the activation energy is just way too high to try to break in. Thank you. Lawrence, thanks for the question. Uh, Andre, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, there are so many things we could continue to talk about we didn't even get into. Um, more questions about your current role as an investor. Uh, there's just so much we could dig into. I hope we can maybe do this again sometime. Uh, the, way, the way that we conclude these uh, fireside chats is by giving everybody on the call a chance to sort of reflect back to our guest, reflect back to Andre, uh, sort of a biggest insight, something that you're taking away from this time uh, take a minute to to think about that. And while you're doing that, I want to uh, kick it over to our uh, CEO, Stephen Krein, to maybe share his insight. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. And Andre, it is awesome to see you, man. I am beyond, you know, you and I were just chatting back and forth how beyond thrilled we are that you've done this incredible tour of duty in healthcare, right? You're a doctor, uh, actually, most importantly, you're a husband, a father, an author, and a doctor, um, but then you became a health transformer and really got to experience everything that it means to be an entrepreneur. You became the chief medical officer of Medicaid. You're now an investor in one of the health transformers, City Block, no less. Um, three years from now, uh, where do you see yourself and what has to happen for you to feel happy about your progress over the next three years? Oh man, Steve, it's, uh, it's good to hear your voice. Um, three years from now, um, 
I will um, probably be founding a um, tech-enabled PACE program or a tech-enabled pediatric specialty, uh, you know, complex care health plan or some other business, who knows? Um, I, I suspect that, that I'll likely be getting my hands dirty again. Um, but I, I, until then, I've got um, some commitments with portfolio company investments that need some handholding. So um, once I get a couple of the wins under my belt and then get some of the you know, the, 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 the big kid institutional investors to sniff out that they can make money in Medicaid, I think then I can say, okay, cool, I can get back in the saddle and, and get back to operating. I love it. Well, we'll look forward to welcoming you back. I know Health Transformer for Life, but welcoming you back. Um, it's great to see you and kick off 2021 with you in the community. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Great to see you. Awesome. You so well. we've got time for one, maybe two uh, biggest insights. Jonathan Fight, I see you raised your hand. Go ahead. I did. I look, I I've gone through this journey uh, alongside Andre and I got to tell you, man, it is actually tacking on what Steve just said. It's really neat to hear someone be able to describe the life in the trenches. The number of times you said what I would have done, what I what I wish I'd done, but actually to reflect on that. Um, I hope that's something that more people take the time. Again, I think I'm channeling Steve crying a little bit. Hopefully he's smiling over there. Um, aren't we all most of the time <laughs> yeah but you know it's something look we're we're so on the go right i mean you know i'm still I, I put in a petition to god for a few more hours a couple years ago still waiting to hear back and and so taking the time to, to to ask what you did right what you did wrong what you did differently and if we could do that along the way then then you could do it along the way um and you know move the ball a little bit one way or another while you're while it's moving so i i love that you've taken the time to do that um, I try to, to emulate that. I hope uh, everybody sort of stands back outside themselves and says, you know, is, am I going in the direction I thought I was going? Um, and am I liking the direction that I am going? So uh, cheers to you on that, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, if anybody else wants to share their biggest insight, you can raise your hand or drop your name in the chat. Uh, in the meantime, maybe our team can pop up the final slide and we can let you know that oh, we've and, got- and Logan, oh. really quickly, uh, just yes. one thing I will offer. Um, I protect a, a pretty decent amount of my time for uh, uh, trainees, clinical trainees in particular, who are considering a, a life of entrepreneurship. So if any of you all have folks on your team that are you know, a med student or a resident or MPH student or whatever along those domains, that's looking for some um, clinical and entrepreneurial mentorship. Um, I've, I've got a, literally a biweekly research sprint where I protect time for that. And um, I always welcome the trainees so we don't get them accidentally stuck in academia for life. That's awesome. Well, I speak for everyone on the call when we say thank you, Andre, for taking time out of your busy schedule to share your experience, your knowledge. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.